0: who spent seven years as a prisoner of war in what was known then and now as Hanoi Hilton. He wrote uh, a couple of years ago in an online magazine about his captivity. He refers to a phrase, he says, I will never forget a phrase I will never forget that was etched on the prison wall by a fellow captive in Vietnam. And it read, Freedom has a taste to it that those who fight and almost die that the protected will never know. Freedom has a taste to it to those who fight and almost die that the protected will never know. You never know the value of something until you lose it. And it was that lost freedom that gave Sam Johnson that taste. You don't know the value of something until you lose it, like freedom. Following the Paris Peace Accords of 1973, and there were 591 American prisoners of war who returned during Operation Homecoming. The total number of missing in action is reported to be 2,500. That number fluctuates or did. It was a lot. But not this much. Between 1525 and 1866, in the entire history of the slave trade to the New World, According to the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, 12.5 million Africans were shipped to the New World. 10.5 million survived the dreaded Middle Passage, disembarking in North America, the Caribbean, and South America. It's estimated today that human trafficking is of such proportion one group that working to free those enslaved estimates that there are as many as 45 million trapped in slavery right now. Not to minimize the unique pain and suffering that goes with being a prisoner of war or a slave or someone who's being trafficked today, but Scripture does draw a parallel. There's a straight line, you see, between all kinds of slavery, whether it's behind bars that you can wrap your hands around or the sort of bars that you can't touch but have the same paralyzing stranglehold on a human soul, the bondage that some of us No. Or maybe new. A bondage that that exists because of an inability to punch through the wall. To breathe fresh air. To see the sunshine. The sunshine of God's grace and mercy. That we all long for and are desperate for. there are aspects of the Apostle Paul's story that will be familiar to you. Not because you were a Pharisee who went through every step along the way to write himself, to produce in himself, to offer of himself the best that he had to offer. Though while not a Pharisee, some of us know that story. That story of, of wondering How much penance is enough? How much righteousness is required? Like Martin Luther, whose whose soul was ripped apart because his inability to answer that question clearly. Who languished in, in the burden of a righteousness that he knew God required, but he could never attain. That led him spiraling downward in depression, like maybe some of us wondering how do we ever see the sunshine coming through the clouds or the prison bars of our soul so we step into a story today i love stories it's it's fascinating to find a narrative embedded in an epistle but that's what we have here paul is telling a story it's the story of his own life and his own testimony that, that Nate began to talk about last week as we were looked at chapter one. It's the story of God breaking in, and we're going to touch on that again today. God breaking into the life of one man and the revolution that took place. I've got a friend named Tom who used to work with college students, and he said he loved to introduce himself on airplanes to that stranger. When asked, what do you do? Tom would say, now remember, he's a campus minister working with college students, but his answer was a little bit different. He said, I'm a revolutionary. And then in the pause, he filled in the gap with, I introduce college students to Jesus Christ and stand back and watch the revolution. In a sense, that's what Paul has to tell about. His own story, the revolution in his own life, the the radical difference that has occurred. It's a story that he introduces in chapter 1 that we're going to step back into briefly. And then we're going to see, go behind the curtain, so to speak, to, to see an episode in Acts 22 that explains why Paul takes the posture that he does when this gospel of freedom that is ours in Christ is threatened. If you have your Bibles, you might look back a page or so to chapter 1, verse 15. When, as Paul writes, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his Son to me. And you'll know, perhaps... That story where the scales fell from his eyes, and Paul on his knees began to see the beauty and the fullness of, of Christ and his sufficiency and his work. He revealed his son to me, Paul says, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Not preach about him, but to preach him, to, to bring him to bear through my words and life, to bring the gospel front and center. And that began a journey in Paul's life where he turned from a life of effort and performance in trying to please a God who he could never please. Knowing that now, wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, loved by God the Father, set apart for his purposes, he had a story to tell that could rightly be called good news. It's not just news of what God calls upon you and God wants from you. It's the good news of what God has done for you. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter, and I remained with him 15 days. Can you imagine what that was like? Paul, who had persecuted the church, Peter, representing the 12 apostles, he's kind of the figurehead and spokesman, it seems, in the Gospels. And here's Paul and Peter. What was it like when they entered the same room. Well, we don't really know. We can imagine that there would have been a little bit of trepidation on the part of both. Peter wondering, what is Saul, now Paul, having to do with me and us and this story that we're a part of? Saul, Paul wondering, what is this one who walked with Jesus for three years having to say to me now that my life has been radically transformed and the revolution has occurred, what was that conversation like? What we know is that their centerpiece, the centerpiece of what they talked about, was the freedom and the righteousness and the joy of salvation. That was the conversation. And we can imagine, can't we, That as that conversation unfolded, 15 days worth of telling this and that, this story, and as the stories begin to come together, Paul asking Peter, what was it like when? And Peter had first-hand stories to tell. And Peter asking Paul about this unbelievable change in his life. What did you see and understand that you didn't understand before? And can you imagine them flipping through the pages of what we call our Old Testament, trying to see how this story culminates in the finished work of Christ? He was there for 15 days. He saw James, the Lord's brother, who who had been designated the head of the church in Jerusalem. But after 15 days, he's gone. And why is he gone? because of what happened when he was there. This is Acts 22. You can look at it later, verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they're not going to accept your testimony about me. There are too many opponents for them to hear you right now, Paul. You need to leave and I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. And that became his banner. He writes about it here, he talks about it elsewhere. He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations, to those that he formerly persecuted. Paul going to them now with this radical, transforming gospel. But now he's back in Jerusalem. We're still in the story. This is still background. I'm going to to try to get us up the ramp here to really see what's going on in chapter 2. And then we're going to look at two critical issues and one footnote that is bigger than a footnote. That's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to see here. The first is the the occasion itself. What we're reading about in in Galatians 2 is most likely the same event recorded and described by Luke in Acts 15. There's conjecture about that. It's not a slam dunk, but it makes a lot of sense if you think about it because the same issues are raised, the same apostles are involved, and the same resolution is declared. It's overlapping, to say the least, if not the same. And the reason for now Paul going again to Jerusalem, that you can read about in Acts 15 or Galatians 2, is because there are what he calls in verse 4 false brothers false brothers, or literally (laughs) pseudo-brothers. Pseudo, fake, pretend brothers, who, according to J.B. Phillips, wormed their way into our meeting. Don't you like that picture? They kind of wormed their way into the meeting because they had an ax to grind and a point to make. The ax to grind and the point to make was that Paul's message was beginning to contradict what was coming out of the church in Jerusalem. At least that's what they supposed. Paul was pretty radical, you see. He was declaring something free. He was declaring something that looked like an end run around what was required. You know, every time there's a, not every time, occasionally there's a marathon race, a long distance run, and someone will take a shortcut and People on the sidelines are going, wait, 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 that's not the way. Or it makes the news, but they get caught later, taking a shortcut. That's what this felt like to the false brothers. That Paul had a 23-mile marathon. That some of the necessary components of finishing the race were excluded. Like circumcision. (laughs) You see, what... It's a fair question if you think about it. This faith had grown up and out of the promise to Abraham fulfilled through King David and those, the covenant because it continues. And it's a, it's a logical question to ask when you get to this point. Don't you have to become Jewish before you become a follower of Christ? I mean, it made sense at a level, at some level. And that was the issue. Paul is saying that there's a different way of doing it without coming through the rituals and the requirements of our faith. Those false pseudo-brothers. They had a point, a fair point. And so Paul rushes to Jerusalem to iron this out. And he goes, it says in verse 1, by a revelation of God. God was the one who said, get to Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem and meet with the church there. He goes, you see, not to receive authorization. In fact, as you read this text, maybe you heard it, he makes it very clear how Peter and Paul have identical callings and responsibilities, but to different peoples. It's not one is looking to the other for some sanctions or authority. They've been given authority from on high to proclaim the gospel, Peter to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. So he's going not to get a rubber stamp okay. He's not going to get his license to preach. He's not going to get further instruction in the gospel. He's going to to gather with the Jerusalem leaders to inform them of what's going on out of a concern that they might somehow allow the teaching of these false brothers to go unchallenged. Paul, you see, knows what it's like to live under the burden of the law and to be freed from it. And when somebody starts talking about imposing burdens and rules and regulations and rituals... On top of the free gift of the gospel in Christ that is ours by faith, Paul's ready to fight. He's ready to fight with words, and you can sort of sense it in here how determined it was. We didn't—I didn't listen to them for a moment. He says about the false brothers. I'm here to straighten this out. We got to get this straight, and there's a lot at stake. The way he describes it is, I don't want to get to the end of the race and realize that I have run in vain because there is a split message. There's one gospel. There's one truth. There's one righteousness. And you can't earn it. You can't attain it. It is only a gift. So he gathers. He brings a couple of people with him. He brings Barnabas. Uh, who's been a partner with Paul to this point, And he's got previous relationships with the Jerusalem church. But he brings along a young man named Titus. A Gentile. A Gentile believer. A Gentile believer uncircumcised. Who would be a living example of Paul's position. One man wrote about this. Why did Paul take Titus with him? Because he's not playing games. His gospel has laid hold of real people. Titus is going to be exhibit A of Paul's gospel preaching. Titus a Greek, not circumcised according to the Old Testament laws. There was no better way of forcing the real issue than to take along a real person. It was no longer theory. It was no longer philosophy. Here's Titus. What are we going to do about this? John Stott says, he took with him to Jerusalem a Gentile companion and a Gentile gospel. But you see, that Gentile gospel is the one gospel. He gathers with, twice in verse 6, he he refers to those who seemed influential. You've met people like that, right? People that stand out, they look like they're influential. In this case, they were. (laughs) These were influential people. Three men in verse 9, he describes them as those who seem to be pillars. Pillars referring to how substantial their role was in this thing called the church. Pillar even brings to mind the temple that the church now replaced. These are these men and their teaching. We talk about and refer to the foundation of the apostles. And they're teaching. And these three, it's Peter, the unofficial representative of the twelve. John, the apostle John, likely the disciple whom Jesus loved that we read about in the gospel by his name. And then James, not the apostle, not one of the twelve, but the brother of Jesus, we read. The recognized head at this point of the church in Jerusalem. That's the gathering. And what is it they gather around? There's something at stake. There's a lot at stake. John Stott wrote this. It's it's a tense and crucial situation, an occasion fraught with great peril and equally great possibilities for the subsequent history of the Christian church. There's a lot going on as Peter and James and John gather with Paul and Barnabas with Titus in the wings. And these Church leaders gather together. Paul entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter entrusted with the gospel to the Jews. There's something at stake. What is it? Unity. There's a unity at stake. Depending on what happens here, there could become two churches, two gospels, two ways. It's not necessary that everyone not going his own way if he was not supported by the leaders of the Jerusalem church. It would be necessary that they not splinter over this. I said that wrong. It's just necessary that they not splinter. You see, Paul's evangelizing efforts would be undermined and the unity of the church would be compromised unless they can come to terms. John Piper said, Paul's ministry would have been in vain if the Judaizers, those false brothers, were right. That is, if the apostles in Jerusalem disagreed with Paul and insisted on circumcision for Gentile believers. This would mean that the apostles of Christ had contradictory messages. And no church could be established on such a fractured foundation. I mean, would you move into a house whose foundation was splintered and fractured? The church would have stumbled out of the starting gates. Paul did not need to confirm his own gospel. He needed to confirm that the other gospel, the other apostles agreed and that there was unity. That's what's at stake. There's something else at stake. It's not only unity, it's wrapped up in that word freedom. You see, there was a general question, what is required for admission? What are the admission requirements into the church? Is it necessary, specifically the necessary question, is it necessary to submit to the law of Moses? In other words, do you have to become Jewish before you become a Christian? Paul's going to return to this theme again and again in this book. Because he recognizes that while there are brothers, false brothers in their midst trying to spy out our freedom, freedom was something to preserve and to fight for and to clarify and to, and to delineate. You see, there's a liberty. There's a liberty that is yours in Christ. You are free, Paul says, from the rules and regulations, the rituals that make that enslave you. They may be written. They may be subtle expectations or demands placed upon yourself. Either you place them on yourself or others have placed them on you. The gospel gives you a freedom from rules and regulations. It also gives you a freedom from the guilt and the insecurity of being unable to live that out and to maintain. Some of us wonder... What do I have to do? And how you answer that question determines the degree to which you really grasp the beauty and the fullness and the centrality of the gospel. Because the gospel deals with that burden. With those subtle or not so subtle expectations and demands that you place on yourself or others. It deals with the guilt and insecurity that creep in, that, smug, that are smuggled into your... that worm their way into your heart. It deals with the noisy conscience that many of us live with. That's what's at stake. You know, it's been said that the best way to learn something is to first do it wrong. Paul had that t-shirt. It's exactly why he is so ready to fight with words. Because he said, I've tried this. I've tried ritual. I've tried regulation. I've tried morality. I've tried my best. And it wasn't until... God brought me to my knees and he lifted the scales from my eyes that I began to see the one who had given his life and his performance and his obedience and gave it to me as a gift with my name on it. And once you've received that, and then you begin to feel... The weight coming from the left or the right or from behind knocking you over the head with obligation and expectation and demands, you begin to see why Paul was so insistent with Peter and James and John we got to get this straight. We have to get this straight. Because it's not only unity that's threatened, so is our freedom. The freedom that is ours from the bondage or the curse of the law. And that's what we read about. He writes about that. You see, the law becomes a curse to us because we cannot fulfill it. And it's a constant weight and burden that we can't fulfill. And when we can't, we become trapped and struggle through some noisy conscience guilt of being unable to do what God requires until we begin to see. As Paul heard from Peter and James and John when they said to him, we have nothing to add to your gospel. Paul, you've got it right. We're united on this. It is one truth. It is one way. It is one righteousness. And there is nothing that you add to it. It's Jesus plus nothing. Now they didn't use those words, but that's what they said. It's the work of Jesus plus nothing. And as they gathered around, they shook on it. They shook on the fact that That there is one gospel for anyone and everyone who is in Christ, regardless of cultural and ethnic background. Titus is an example. They they shook on it and they they were happy to agree to a division of labor. Paul, you go to the Gentiles. We're going to the Jews. But one gospel, one message, and it's the same. And they shook on it. Two key issues at stake, critical issues, unity and freedom in Christ. And they shook on it. And you could imagine, can't you, they're sitting around the right hand of fellowship. Maybe it's one hand on a shoulder. Maybe they're huddled together. But there's a brace and there's a gleam in their eye and there's a hope. There's a hope because they have agreed together on what the gospel is. Five men firmly clasping each other's right hand, brothers in a common cause. And then there's what reads like a footnote. Did you catch that? I mean, this passage would have read very well without verse 10. But what Paul heard them say was, We only ask one thing of you, Paul. Remember the poor. Preach the gospel, one message, righteousness, a gift, freely received, no regulations, no strings. Remember the poor. You know, it is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. There is a note that runs throughout Scripture about the poor. It's most likely that they had the Jerusalem poor in mind when he said this. It was known as a very poor church. Gifts from other churches were sent to Jerusalem for the poor in Jerusalem. But it's a theme throughout. And why is it? How does it rise to that level? Could it be that the unity that we gather around, the freedom that ours in Christ centers on one who moved in among the poor, who became one of us, who was physically and materially poor, for sure, but moved in among those who were spiritually poor, the poor in spirit, those who were bankrupt righteously, not enough righteousness to offer. Jesus moves in among us. So Paul, remember the poor who remind us that apart from Christ, we are impoverished. There's a freedom that comes with that gospel. Some of you have stories to tell about that. You you flash back to when maybe maybe it wasn't like Paul on the Damascus Road. Maybe it wasn't like the man Charles Wesley describes, either. But you can connect. You can find yourself in here. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, until thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus, and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Some of you know that those chains are real. And you can't punch through the wall of righteousness. And you grow weary of trying. But do you know in Christ, those prison walls are shattered? It's not something that you perform, it's not a ritual that you inhabit. It's not a righteousness you manufacture. It is received by faith and you are free. You are free in Christ. You are free from ritual and rule and regulation. Now what goes with that is this newfound affection to want want the will of God and to please Him. And Paul's going to write about that too the further we go. But what's at stake here is a unity and a freedom that is ours in Christ. Do you know what happens when you're adopted in the family of God? What were you before? Before you became a son and daughter, what were you? Well, if your mind goes to, okay, I'm adopted. I was an orphan. And Paul uses the orphan language. But there's another image that he uses. Before you were adopted into the family of God by faith... In Galatians 4 he says, you're no longer a slave, but a son and a daughter. And if a son and daughter, then an heir. You're no longer a slave. There's a freedom that is yours in Christ. And we do live like orphans. We also live like slaves. That contradicts the beauty and the fullness and the lavish grace of God that we find in the gospel. Representative Johnson said, freedom has a taste to it that those who fight and almost die that the protected will never know. Freedom has another taste to it. Freedom has a taste to the one who fought and did die for you, for your freedom. David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. A greater David tasted death. Tasted the fullness of the weight of all of that bondage, of all of that slavery. And in his resurrection shatters it. He shatters the prison bars. That light comes in. And as the light of the gospel comes in to your heart and to your life. It comes with freedom. Freedom from rules and regulation. Freedom from the performance treadmill that gets you nowhere. You know, some of us feel like that car whose wheels are stuck in the mud, and it doesn't matter how hard we press the gas pedal, there's no traction. And there's no freedom because there's no traction. And we and we spin our wheels and we get deeper and deeper. And some of you may be in that story today. Where you can't shake it. You can't push through failing to understand that as God removes the scales from your eyes, you belong to one who has pushed through. He has shattered the, broken, the brokenness of this world, the darkness of your heart, and into it comes the light of the gospel and the freedom that is yours in him. A greater David sang that song, taste and see that the Lord is good, and he tastes death for us. And what we now taste, when we taste and see that the Lord is good, is a death that could not hold him. And so what we taste tastes like that heavenly banquet that is being set for those who are in Christ. Here's a foretaste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, would you give us that kind of spiritual appetite that causes us to drink deeply of the gospel? Lord, would you help us to see the fullness of Christ's finished work on our behalf and how he has broken the the bonds that enslave us, that has set us free, that there is nothing to add to what Christ has done? other than our devoted love. And we offer that in the name of Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray.